Uh, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off in our uh, current sermon series through the book of Genesis. Um, you will remember those of you who were with us last week, uh, chapter 17, God has not only confirmed and now clarified his covenant with uh, Abraham, but here in as we begin chapter 18, God had personally appeared to Abraham as three men, and we're going to discover in chapter 19 this morning that two of those men are actually angels uh, who will journey on to Sodom, while the third will be identified with the Lord himself and stay behind at Mamre uh, to discuss things with Abraham. And beginning here in verse 16 of chapter 18, God is shifting his focus from his covenant with Abraham now to Sodom and its sin and its impending judgment. And as I've outlined in your bulletins, the story of Sodom here is going to unfold in five distinct acts, and I've alliterated the titles of each of these five scenes for us, the story of sin, if you will. But what I want us to see this morning, as always, is that this, this is not just the story of Sodom's sin. We need more than just a history lesson in sin this morning. We need personal conviction we need to read ourselves into this story. And so we're going to consider as we work our way through this morning how the story of Sodom might serve as an analogy for the cycle of sin in our own lives as well. And we will end, as always, by focusing on God's cure for sin. But let's begin uh, by reading God's word together. Um, if you would, one more time, stand with me as you're able, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word. Again, long passage this morning. We're taking chunks of Genesis together to try and make our way through 50 chapters to get through, so we're trying to hustle, but uh, treat every story with uh, the degree of attention it deserves. So we begin in verse 16 of chapter 18, all the way through chapter 19, uh, the end, verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous Within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. 
He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 are there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again about this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. In chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly and They turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down his door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck With blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the door, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, I pray, regardless of whatever state our hearts come into this room, come into this live stream feed uh, in this morning, some of our hearts are heavy. God, we feel like we just get beat up and chewed up and spit out by the world on a day-to-day basis these days. We're exhausted. We're tired. We just need encouragement. God, I recognize this passage is heavy. <laughs> the sin of Sodom. And yet, Father, we trust that this morning you want to use this passage to remind us of the, the, the truth, the reality of our situation, and yet the glorious truth of your gospel, that our, our biggest threat today is not COVID-19, it's not racial unrest, it's not people who refuse to wear a mask or the government trying to take away our rights by making us wear them. Our biggest threat is the sin that lives in our own hearts and we need freedom from it. God, would you use your word this morning to free someone from the grip of sin? Jesus, would you, would you be amongst us now as we continue to worship you by studying and applying your word to our lives? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Scene number one here is sin addressed. Verses 16 through 21 of chapter 18, sin is addressed. The first thing that must be said about Sodom's sin, about all sin, is that God sees it. God sees sin. Sin is by definition godlessness. It's the rejection of God, but that doesn't mean that God ignores it. God states in Jeremiah 16, 17, in no uncertain terms, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. So God not only sees sin, but his justice demands that he address it, that he judge it. That is Sodom's fate. It will serve as a powerful example throughout the rest of Scripture. Sodom will be mentioned 27 times outside the book of Genesis, more even than the flood story of chapter 6. Sodom is a bright, flashing, caution sign warning us of God's hatred of sin and his promise to judge it. And it is interesting here that God addresses the sin of Sodom not with the Sodomites, not with Lot, But with Abraham, he says in verse 17, I will not hide from Abraham what I am about to do. And God offers us two reasons why. He says first in verse 18, I'm disclosing this to Abraham because all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Abraham is to be not only the father of many nations himself, but a blessing to all nations. And Abraham, here's your first test. God is giving him an opportunity here with Sodom and Gomorrah, these wicked, pagan, Canaanite towns. God is inviting him specifically to intercede on their behalf. Second, God says in verse 19, 
I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so God called Abraham to be blameless, you'll remember. He is to be distinct from the other nations, to live according to a higher calling and thus serve as an example to them of godliness. So God raises Sodom's sin with Abraham here that it might serve as an example to Abraham of what not to do, of the kind of behavior that I, the Lord, will not tolerate. Kent Hughes says their lifestyle was the absolute antithesis of righteousness and justice. Their ruins would become a powerful teaching tool to Abraham and his descendants. There on the border of Israel, the eerie, burnt-out, sulfur-stenched remains permanently testified to what happened to a people who reject God. And so, friends, the very simple application question for you and me this morning is, do we really believe that God will address our sin? It is not uncommon to hear unbelievers say things like, well, I'm not really that religious. I try to be a good person, and I'm sure that God is loving, that he will accept me. They make it clear in that statement that they don't have the faintest glimpse of just how holy God really is, just how much God actually abhors sin. He cannot tolerate it, not even a drop. He sets the standard at perfection, Matthew 5, 48. If you are not 100% absolutely sinless, then I'm sorry, you do not measure up. You are disqualified from heaven and from relationship with me. That is his bar. How often do even those of us who are in Christ miss this and we use God's grace as an excuse for our sin? That's why immediately after Paul shares the gospel in Romans chapter 5, he asks in chapter 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can those of us who have died to sin still live in it? Paul immediately turns there because he knew that our sinful tendency would be to condone and indulge our sin now that we realize that God's grace has covered it. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is that God has addressed our sin. Even for those of us who are in Christ, he addresses our sin. He addressed it on the cross. And we believers of all people should therefore treat our sin with the utmost of seriousness because the very centerpiece of our faith serves as a perpetual graphic reminder to us of just how seriously God takes our sin. But despite God addressing our sin, number two, we tend all too often to avoid it. We want to avoid it. Verses 22 through 33, what we have here, even in Abraham's well-intentioned attempt to intercede for Sodom, that they might avoid the consequences of their sin, this really amounts to Abraham himself avoiding the depth and the depravity of just how sinful Sodom has become. Let me say that again. Even Abraham's well-intentioned intercessory attempt here exposes the fact that Abraham himself is avoiding the true depth and depravity of Sodom's sin. And like him, because we are sinners, Abraham's line of reasoning here makes sense to us, doesn't it? He says, will you indeed, God, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing. 
to put the righteous to death with the wicked. God, if you want to send COVID as a, as a judgment against the wicked, that's one thing. But far be it from you, God, to let it affect me, to impact my life. And like Abraham, we fancy ourselves righteous and we start to play the numbers game. Why did Abraham start with 50 righteous people in verse 24? One commentator points out, that Amos 5, verse 3, suggests a small city could field 100 fighting men. Consequently, 50 men here might represent half the city, an equal number of righteous and wicked in the city. Does that sound familiar? Right? If my good deeds just outweigh or at least match my bad deeds, then I'm mostly good and God will accept me. But it begs the question, how much sin should a holy God tolerate in our lives? How much sin can he tolerate and still be a truly loving father? If my own daughter, Ellery, gave me a hug and then immediately turned around and slapped me in the face, should I view those two things as effectively canceling one another out? As her father, how much sin in her heart can I turn a blind eye to and still claim to love her? But just to play along here, God makes his point by agreeing with Abraham's terms. In verse 26, he says, Okay, Abraham, if there are 50 righteous in Sodom, I'll spare the whole city. Then 45, then 40, then 30, 20, all the way down to 10. And why does Abraham stop at 10? Presumably he's confident that surely there are at least 10 righteous people in all of Sodom. I mean, Sodom isn't actually just some small town. Population estimates range up to 50,000 or more people. And so Abraham slept in peace that night feeling pretty good about God's agreement in verse 32 that for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Surely I've saved the town. Work here is done. The truth of the matter is that Abraham could have negotiated God all the way down to one person and the town would still be doomed. You say, wait a minute, I thought the New Testament describes Lot as a righteous man. If you know your Bible really well, Second Peter chapter 2, that's true. Despite everything that we are about to hear about Lot in chapter 19 of Genesis, everything we already learned about him in chapter 13, even the worst of his sins that we'll hear about next week, 2 Peter 2, verses 7 through 9, still describe Lot three times for emphasis as a righteous man. How is that possible? Because Lot's righteousness, like Abraham's in chapter 15, verse 6, like any righteousness in any unrighteous sinner like you and me is only ever the righteousness of faith. It must be counted or credited or imputed to us as righteousness simply on the basis of our trust in God. And despite all of his other character failures, sinful fallings, and there are many, Lot still believed in God. And so his righteousness, like ours, was not his own was imputed to him. And so God doesn't contradict himself when he declares in no uncertain terms in Psalm 14, in Psalm 53, in Ecclesiastes 7, in Romans 3, in 1 John 1, that no one is righteous, no, not one. That was certainly true of all places in Sodom, not one righteous person. But let's turn the mirror back on ourselves again now. What about us? Don't we too 
avoid at all cost dealing with the depth and the depravity of our own sin? Don't we similarly justify and rationalize and negotiate and excuse and minimize our own sin? Don't we say of our own hearts, as Abraham says of Sodom, surely the situation isn't that bad, God. My sin isn't that bad. Don't we try and relativize our sin? My sin isn't nearly as bad as hers. Like the driver who gets pulled over for going 65 and a 60 and says, well, wait a minute, didn't you see all those other cars zooming back past going 80 and 90? In our desperate attempts to avoid the unavoidable truth that God does not grade on a curve, that he would be perfectly just to send every last one of us to hell forever for just one seemingly minor offense because, friends, there are no minor offenses against a perfectly holy God. None is righteous. So be careful what you wish for when you pray like Abraham here in verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Be careful asking for God's justice. The gospel is the good news that you and I don't have to get what we deserve. But despite our best attempts to avoid facing our own sin and its just consequences, the reality is that number three, we all act out in sin every single day. Look with me at chapter 19, verses 1 through 11, at all the sin in just these 11 short verses. Verse 1, the angels find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. Remember, Lot shouldn't be back in Sodom in the first place. When he left Abraham in chapter uh, 13, it was in an envious tizzy. He at best ignored God's uh, Sodom's reputation for sin, and at worst, he pursued it. He sought it out. And then after Sodom was conquered and exiled in chapter 14, and Abraham had to rescue all the Sodomites and the residents and Lot. God gave Lot a chance to recognize his waywardness and repent. Like a dog that returns to its vomit, here's Lot back in Sodom. And not only that, he's sitting at the gate. Kent Hughes notes Lot's position in the gate indicates in his ancient Near Eastern context that he was a major player in the city. Significantly, Genesis records the progression of Lot's assimilation into Sodom. Initially, we hear in chapter 13, he had moved his tent as far as Sodom. Next, he is described in chapter 14 as dwelling in Sodom. And now here, he's pictured in chapter 19 as sitting in the gate of Sodom. He has become a prominent man, a leader in their community. And that's how sin works, isn't it? At first you just hang out at the parties. And then you engage in a little party. Before you know it, you're the life of the party. We read on in verse 2. When Lot saw them, he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. Why? Was Lot just hospitable? I don't think that explains why he pressed them strongly in verse 3 when they politely refused his offer. I think that Lot knows that these are emissaries of God. He bows down and he calls them my lords. I think Lot certainly knows what is going to happen to them as outnumbered strangers in the town square at night in Sodom. 
2 Peter 2.8 says, As Lot lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds and that he saw and heard. So Lot knows full well the depth of Sodom's depravity, and his offer here is really, I think, Lot's own attempt in his shame and in his embarrassment to avoid and to cover up the sin of his beloved city. And then we come to verse 4. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, you hear the emphasis, surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight, bring them out to us that we may know them, yada, sexually. There's been a lot of scholarly debate in recent years over this question of what exactly was the sin of Sodom. The LGBTQ movement has sought to reframe Sodom's sin, not as sodomy, not as homosexuality, but rather as gang rape. They say that is what the Bible takes issue with here. The problem, of course, is that Leviticus 18 and 20 and Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 all clearly identify homosexual practice as sin. And Jude Chapter 1, verse 7, even clearly ties homosexuality to the sin of Sodom here specifically. But really the bigger issue is that rather than trying to limit the scope of, of what Sodom's sin was, the whole point, I think, is that Sodom's licentiousness knows no bounds. Hughes explains, if we imagine the sins of these cities only in sexual terms, we miss the depth of their depravity. The Hebrew word for outcry back in chapter 18 is used in scripture to de describe the cries of the oppressed and the brutalized. And so the prophet Ezekiel interestingly describes the sin of Sodom this way. He says, behold, this was the guilt of Sodom, chapter 16 of Ezekiel. She had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. How does a society reach the point where every man in the city, young and old, makes a habit of homosexual gang rape. It starts by simply ignoring the cries of the poor and the needy. And pretty soon, you're the one making them cry. That's how sin works. It's a virus. It's a cancer. Sin naturally wants to spread and intensify. We read on, Lot hypocritically begs them in verse 7 not to act so wickedly. There's no telling what kind of sin that Lot has indulged in in order to be deemed a prominent man in their eyes. Notice the term of endearment he uses for them here, my brothers. But just when you think perhaps Lot is finally repenting and standing up to them, his proposal in verse 8, to me, as a father myself of a young daughter, is the most despicable of all the sins detailed in this chapter. Even to, to, to think this, propose this. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. There's simply no words to describe the darkness and the degradation of the mind and the heart that would even think up such a solution to their predicament here. Fortunately for Lot's daughters, the men are so degenerate that they refuse Lot's offer. This isn't just about physical pleasure for them. It's about power. It's about exerting dominance over the other. Young girls are too easy. We want the men. And in their angry opposition, they threaten Lot too. Now we will deal with you worse than with them. Presumably we will rape and kill you. And so the angels 
pull him back inside in verse 10. They strike all the men outside with blindness. And the height or the depth, as it were, of their wickedness is realized in verse 11 as they wear themselves out groping for the door in their blindness. It could be easy for us to read a passage like this and to think to ourselves, thank God I'm not like them. I'm not like Lot. And yet that kind of self-justifying, self-excusing, sin-relativizing attitude just proves that we are exactly the kind of people who need to hear and heed the warning of Sodom, that we are more like the Sodomites than we are dissimilar from them. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you keep the whole law, James 2.10, but fail in just one point, you've been guilty of all of it. And friends, the question for us this morning is, will we be humble enough and courageous enough to take an honest look in the mirror of God's word and admit that we stand every bit as much rightfully condemned as the men of Sodom, that we need God's undeserved mercy just as desperately as Lot did. Quickly, number four, sin accommodated. Verses 12 through 22, to accommodate can mean in the negative sense to become adjusted or adapted to. Lot and his family have become so acclimated to a life of sin that even in the process of being mercifully rescued from it, we find them adapting their behavior to make allowance for the continued presence of sin in their hearts. It starts with their son-in-laws in verse 14 who just blatantly laugh off the idea that their sin might be judged Keep in mind that Lot had to go out of the house to find them. That means they had joined the mob. These are the kind of men that Lot had picked out for marriage for his little girls. Then we hear in verse 15 that as morning dawned, the angel said, time to flee. What was Lot's response in verse 16? But Lot lingered. He lingered. Left to his own devices, Lot would have never left Sodom. Sin's hooks had gotten in too deep down in his heart. But the Lord was merciful to him. And the men seized him and they brought him outside the city. But even then, what does Lot do? He's still making accommodations for his sin. The angels instruct him to escape to the hills. But Lot has gotten far too accustomed to the allures and the enticements of big city life. And so he begs them in verse 20. He says, I can actually see another city just over the ridge there. Please let me run there instead. Just a little city. He says it twice. Zor means little. Don't make me give up my life of comfort and sin, cold turkey. Just a little. Let me have a little fun. Just a few drinks. Just a little hooking up. Just a little lie. Just a little gossip. Just a little jealousy. And even in our own alleged repentance, we all too often make accommodations for our sin. Just a little. You can take the man out of Sodom, but you can't take the Sodom out of the man. And yet accommodate can also have a positive connotation. It can mean 
dictionary.com, to do a kindness or a favor to, oblige. And that's exactly what God does for Lot here. He accommodates. Verse 21, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Friends, aren't you so grateful that our God bears with us in our sin? Aren't you so grateful that God does not give up on us despite our sin? That he doesn't say, go clean your act up and then come back and we'll talk about me forgiving you and being in relationship with you. Listen, friends, if you wait until you get your act cleaned up to come to Jesus, you will never come. You'll never come. Jesus says, come as you are. The more sinful you are, the more of my glorious grace I get to display. Come as you are. And finally, number five, sin adjudged. To adjudge is to sentence or condemn. God offers forgiveness to sinners, but he still promises to judge sin. And in verses 23 through 29 here, you get a whole city's worth of judgment for Sodom. And in verse 26, we hear that Lot's wife specifically was numbered among them. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Jesus himself explains why she looked back in Luke chapter 17. Jesus says on that day, the coming day of judgment that he's prophesying, day of judgment for all sin, of all people, for all time, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. The monument of salt. She's an example. She missed her stuff. She missed her old life. So she looked back. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is passing away along with its desires. When we decide to follow Jesus, there can be no looking back. Why would you? And friends, it was one thing to reject God 4,000 years ago. But here's what the Bible says about the fate of those who reject God's final and full revelation in the person of Jesus. It says, In you, Capernaum, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you hear the warning? Those of us who have seen and heard of Jesus are without excuse. Friends, we need a Savior who doesn't just shout down from heaven, try harder. We need a Savior who came down from heaven to personally address our sin problem. We need a better intercessor than Abraham because we can't even in our sin muster up the analogous equivalent of whatever ten righteous men would equate to. We have no righteousness of our own. 
whatsoever to bring to the table, nothing to contribute to our own salvation. We come with our hands totally empty or we don't come at all. Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it is so significant that the story ends in verse 29 with God remembering Abraham while he drags Lot kicking and screaming out of Sodom. Because that is exactly what God has done for you and me and our intercessor in Christ. It is for Christ's sake, for his glory, that God saves us. That while we were yet sinners, with nothing redeemable in us, that Christ died for us. And it is for Jesus' sake that God graciously credits his righteousness to us by faith and does not deal with us according to our iniquity as we so dreadfully deserve like Sodom. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He shall. He should. Justice is getting what we deserve. But mercy, mercy is getting what we don't deserve. Praise God this morning that Jesus unjustly took God's justice on himself so that you and I could receive his mercy. Let's pray.